Hello and welcome to Women of the Middle East podcast. This podcast relates the realities of Arab women and their rich and diverse experiences. It aims to present the multiplicity of their voices and wishes to break overdue cultural stereotypes about women of the Middle East. Season 5 is a collaboration between Musawa and Women of the Middle East podcast. As we will be discussing Musawa's latest book, Justice and Beauty in Muslim Marriage, Towards Egalitarian Ethics and Laws, published by One World Academic in December of 2022. My name is Amal Malki, I'm a feminist, scholar, and an educator. This is Women of the Middle East podcast. Hello and welcome to a special episode of Women of the Middle East podcast. Today, I will be your host. My name is Mesdudin al I am an HBKU alumni of the Women's Society and Development Program, as well as content creator on Women of the Middle East podcast. Today, I will be facilitating our conversation regarding season five of Women of the Middle East podcast in collaboration with Musawa. Musawa is a global movement for equality and justice in the Muslim family. Joining me as speakers will be some of our very own HBKU, Digital Humanities and Women's Society and Development students, Sundus Saeed, Mikhail Risha, and Hatem Rashti. Hi guys, thank you for joining us today. Um, before we start our conversation, how about you tell us a bit about yourselves, your background, so that our listeners and viewers can get a little bit of uh, insight into what we have to offer into d- today's discussion. Thank you, Mishdudin, for, for, for having us today and for the invitation. It's really um, nice being here in your company and with, with my colleagues. Um, so my name is Hatim. Um, I'm from Morocco and I am a second year student at the Women's Society and Development Program at HBKU. Um, it's been my sixth year here in, in Qatar and my research looks at the intersection of migration, gender, sexuality and health, uh, particularly in the context of Middle Eastern refugees um, in Greece. Um, so that's kind of like the scholarly angle I'm coming into this. Um, as well as I do have a feminist commitment to organizing and scholarship that kind of advances um, 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 the rights of, of, of gender and sexual minorities and minoritized folks in the region. So. Um, thank you so much for having me. Uh, it's really uh, an honor to be here. I'm Sindus. Sindus Said. I'm a graduate. I'm a fresh graduate from Women's Society and Development Program at HPKU. Um, In my thesis, I was basically exploring generational differences between Pakistani migrant women in their feelings of belonging to Qatar. So I was looking at how um, there are different themes of like Fala system, uh, the condition of of their ascending country and things like this and how this impacts their lives and uh, their financial status and everything. Other than that, um, I've I've had the chance to work on Jordanian women's uh, marriage rights and divorce rights uh, at HBKU. Hi, thank you so much for inviting me. Uh, I'm Mikael, I'm also a fresh graduate from HBKU in the Master of Women's Society and Development. Uh, my thesis was about uh, the politics of family, reproduction and men's infertility in Qatar. And I also did uh, research on women and Islam, but from a historical perspective. So let's get right into it. As I'm pretty sure you guys have all watched season five's episodes. My first question to you guys is, what were your general reflections, opinions? What struck you the most? I think the book is really um, a needed intervention, I think, um, in scholarly work, both in practice in terms of Islamic feminist feminism. I think it's situated within a second wave that is kind of sort of trying to um, understand and foreground um, feminism within um, interpretations that move beyond just Quranic interpretations, but are also grounded in Sunnah and Hadith, which is 
um, less engaged with in the first wave um, Islamic feminists, when the, the kind of task was basically to revise the interpretation of Quran. Um, so I think it's a very much needed intervention, and also it's situated within the institution that is um, uh, very foundational in the construction of, of you know, um, of selfhood in, in the Muslim world and Muslim communities, which is the family, right? So the first part when we're kind of socialized and brought into is the family. So it is important to see how the family interact, intersects with state laws, with um, norms, and to try to understand it from a feminist perspective that is necessarily grounded within Islamic tradition and Islamic scholarship. So I think what this project is doing is is very needed and is it's, it's, it's very important. But I think what's even more impressive, at least from my perspective, is from the, the work that is built around this book. So it's not just a book. There is also guides, feminist guides on the Musawa projects that you can read this book. There are questions in these guides. There's also um, 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 a bunch of kind of reading. If you want to do a reading group, there are like questions that can guide these reading groups. So there is an infrastructure that is built around this book. So it is very much kind of a book meant for practice. Uh, rather than just, you know, a, an academic exercise that is going to, you know, scholarship. So I think this is really important for forging kind of um, solidarities between people who are thinking about it intellectually in the universities on these structures and people who are actually practicing in it, doing it in laws, in policy briefs, etc. So this kind of divide is also brought together within this book project. And I think that's really amazing and something to be celebrated. Um, for me also, I, I agree with Hatim. Uh, first of all, I think like the project is extremely interesting. I really enjoyed reading and listening to the podcasts. And as Hatim said, I love that there were guides and there were questions and um, like the podcast in itself, I think makes it more accessible than when you look at the guide, it makes it like into smaller chunks. So you can begin like slowly to understand like these larger concepts. So I found like it easier to understand because you take it bit by bit. You get to hear, of course, the people uh, and the episodes and then you read like the shorter versions and then the larger versions and the diagrams and everything uh, in the guide. Um, I think it makes it very easy. Um, what struck me the most about the book was the part about beauty and like how that was taken in the chapter in, in different ways. Uh, when we go on, I, I, I will talk about how much I love the part about spirituality, but I'd let Mikael speak. Uh, I really like that we heard from uh, those who are usually excluded, like namely there is a lot of women who contributed to the book, uh, Muslim women, and I think usually we speak about Muslim women, but we don't hear them, even I mean Muslim women, but there's a huge diversity inside this category. But so I find it very interest, interesting, the positionality of the authors uh, of the book, and I was really struck, struck by the, um, like how uh, the in the through the chapters uh, some events or some facts which has been marginalized were put in the center to reflect on it and to offer an alternative to the hegemonic discourse, and I find it very uh, important. It's building on on these conversations. It's also that the book is not only a thematic contribution, so we just don't only hear from women with diverse backgrounds from how they interpret and understand, you know, um, Muslim family and Muslim family laws, but also it's a methodological intervention. So we see a lot of chapters are, are giving us methods to interpret texts, are giving us methods to make sense out of the, the, the Islamic text and the, the legal text in order to better our understandings and our interpretations of it that are foregrounded in Islamic ethics as well as like feminist praxis. And I think that's also something to, to kind of mention. It's not just thematically, but also methodologically, it is a, a, a huge contribution. Exactly. I think it's very important, as Mikhail touched on, is that we're centering or the book is centering women's experiences and lived realities as a lens to actually read the sacred texts and interpret them. 
and especially since historically women are marginalized, especially when it comes to um, studying Islam, the book, the Quran, anything related to Sharia, what it means, and I think that's huge. Women are taught to avoid these things and to rely on jurists' interpretations. And as such, we see even in the book that something super important is that these jurists are humans in the end. This is their interpretations based on what they've accumulated in knowledge and the cultural contexts they were living through. So it's not divine in itself. And I think that's something super important because we used to think or we're brought up to think that, oh, you cannot question these things. You take them as they are. Yes, correct. You're, you're, I really like that point, Majreen, that you're making because I think the book makes this um, clear distinction, and I think Musawa as a project, between fiqh and between sharia. So what's fiqh as the interpretation that is was kind of shaped by the 6th century Islamic um, um, jurists who were mostly men and then who were interpreting that the text through that lens, which is, um, which is uh, masculinity and masculinist in a sense. Um, and that privileged a certain kind of um, view and perspective that then became hegemonic in interpreting, interpreting like Islamic orthodoxy. And that vastly ignores the experiences and like the lives of women. Um, and I think it's this is also where, for example, things like um, 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 feminism and feminist interpretations of that text allow us to see this construct constructiveness of, of it. And I think that's uh, something valuable to me as where you position yourself vis-a-vis -vis the text is important to what comes out of it. And this is standpoint theory in two words in a sense that has been kind of predominantly in, in feminist understandings. What would your critiques be if you have any or had any? Yeah, so I think first I, I would like to, to reiterate that I think this is an important project and this is something that should be grounded um, and should be kind of celebrated in many ways. And of course, as any other text or as any other kind of effort, there there are some some shortcomings that we can highlight. And I think one of the the ones that was major to me, in a sense, was the understanding of of texts or of Quran and Sharia and Sira as as the determinant of what Islamic or Muslim family life would look like. So I think, for example, more ethnographic approaches would show us that it's actually not as straightforward as it is. So it's not just a, exactly a change in laws or a change in policy would necessarily translate to the way that people live and practice um, um, family. And I think there's a huge diversity in the way that people live and practice family in the Muslim world or whatever you want to call it, Muslim majority societies, that we can gain some, you know, anthropological insight from. Like there are studies that showcasing how um, um, women navigate within these constraints, um, that these legal constraints that are um, highlighted by the Musawa project. Um, in ways that um, also still um, um, important to, to kind of mention, but it's not solely just the law that matters. There's also the practice of the law um, that we should kind of be attuned to. And I think I was really struck. I think in episode one in the in the um, in the podcast, in the way that um, uh, Dr. Mulkey said, "Oh, this is the first step of the project, and there is another step, which is the ethnographic part, to see how family is lived." And I think that's really important to me. I mean, coming from my perspective, I'm, I'm really interested in these kind of rich ethnographic texts where um, we see how people practice and navigate and maneuver. And a second critique, I have multiple, but a second one that I would say, and I would leave the, the word for my colleagues, is the way that we would do a little bit more better if we understand the experiences of so-called Muslim women 
in a more nuanced way by looking at other factors. I mean, Muslim women are not the same everywhere. Like we can't just say there's one typical Muslim woman um, um, that, you know, will have this tafsir and then she's going to become enlightened and be able to advocate for herself. I mean, there are so many axes of oppression that intersect with gender. There's race, there's class. Um, and I and I wish there was a little bit more um, attunement to these, um, um, to these um, axes of oppression. I think there is particularly one chapter that I really appreciated. It's attunement to class when um, they were talking about how to revisit the marriage of, of Prophet Muhammad uh, وسلم, and, uh, and, and, and Khadija as, as, as a, a way to understand um, these dynamics through class structure and class um, struggle. And I think if we do a little bit more to understand, you know, blackness, to understand race, to understand um, um, class within the context of Muslim societies, especially within like um, um, the, the, the particular moment, the political moment we're living in right now, we would have a richer and more nuanced understanding of these experiences that go beyond just an interpretation of a text that can be, you know, feminist, because that can mean multiple things to multiple people across, you know, the spectrum. So I think it's it's important to also consider that um, that as well. But I think this is a, a the first step in, in in a larger kind of discussion that might engulf all of these kind of aspects. Um, I agree with Hatim once again. Um, I think. Um, in the first step, in the first podcast that she mentions, that they will do research, which is very exciting. Um, and my country is one of those countries, and I would love to. I would love to read that research. I had the chance to work on um, a project with one of our professors, where I was looking at marriage and divorce laws, and how marriage would look like for somebody marrying internationally, and like how you're kind of stuck between these two. Um, laws and which one will be upheld and which one will not be upheld and how that has to do with your gender and how that has to do with your religion and so I think definitely this book is very very interesting um, but this is definitely the first step and we need to like do research in very specific cases to see how different outcomes come out of like these intersections between your nationality, race and um, what court you use, like civil court or Islamic court. Um, moreover, I was also thinking about how, uh, as Hatim said, Muslims are not the same everywhere. So I was thinking of different um, sects again, that how there are different sects and they follow different uh, interpretations and different understandings. So definitely, like, um, we, we can take this book as a basis to think more, but we need to also look at people coming from different uh, backgrounds and different sects to see how they're interpreting the same thing. I, I agree with them and uh, yes, like the book was really centered on the Islamic part, but I think like to achieve egalitarian marriage, uh, we also have to look at the political system, at the economic system, which will not, I think, render possible the marriage to be equal just by the, by changing the religious interpretation, I think the change has to be more deep and there is political pressure, there is economic pressure who will kind of um, renew and re-enhance these gendered roles and expectations. So yeah, as my colleagues were saying, I think it's the first step of the biggest uh, project. I agree with you guys, even touching on your points, when we're talking about how it's not only the legal system we should be looking at and not only laws, it's also lived practices and norms because, for example, I was thinking about marriage, how legally you're supposed to write you know, your conditions in a marriage contract. But oftentimes I've heard and I've seen a lot of people because of culturally what it portrays, 
it is frowned upon in a way because they would say, oh, why do you want to start off your marriage this way? And you, you're making conditions, even though it is a woman's right to write these things down. And even if uh, certain conditions are written into the contract, you're able to succeed in doing that. Then in practice, are those ever fulfilled or not? Uh, for example, if we just take the example of mahar, like you can write millions of mahar, but if it's never presented, um, because of norms and because of like what would people say then we have to start questioning like the validity of the marriage but then that conversation is never had right you can educate policymakers and lawmakers and you can educate many people who are involved in certain processes that are part of the structure but then does that structure actually translate to reality or no, that's definitely important to do research on that. I just want to build on that point to suggest that also at the level of policy change or legal change, I think it's important for sure. But I think there are also ways in which people have used these laws to create all sort of alternative ways to live in, in, in Muslim communities or, or Muslim majority countries um, that are necessarily built within like a certain elitist form of how do you fight oppression? Because like, if you're a particular certain class, so the way you, you you fight oppression is through laws and through going to the state because you have that privileged access to the state. But when you don't have that privileged access to the state, then you have to find all sorts of ways um, to actually configure um, how, how, how are you gonna get justice or whatever you want, you, you're trying to get out of it. And there is actually some scholarship or anthropological scholarship highlighting how, for example, in Egypt, women use these kind of contracts as patriarchal as we might think of them right now to actually navigate and actually kind of sort of negotiate better uh, ways of living in within these constraints that they live on compared to other women who are more likely in a, a part of an elite class that see the state as you know, um, um, as, 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 as where they want to get justice from. So I think it's this idea of justice is really based on where your social position is and what are your capacities and what are your privileges and etc. That we might really want to think it more contextually and locally about what it means to seek justice or what it means to actually have justice. Does that mean in this context seeking laws? Does this mean actually changing, I don't know, working conditions or labor conditions? Does it mean actually changing um, some other configurations of power? So I think it's really interesting to be attuned to these um, um, issues rather than saying, you know, we need like a, a blanket legal change um, and then we will hope that after this legal change, like after X or Y or Z amount of years, then we're going to see a more just and more um, equal marriage in, in Muslim societies. I think that's, that's a fantasy that I would like to hold up into, but unfortunately that's not the reality of many people. Um, so I think it's, 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 it's good to kind of critically question that as well. Um, Hatem, go ahead. Uh, what other critiques would you like to pose? Let's bounce off that. Yeah, sure. Uh, I think I will want to hone in maybe back. Other people can also jump in maybe um, on the question of, for example, race, which I find really interesting. Um, so in a chapter on the Islamic legal theory and ethics um, by um, Dr. Nervin Rida, I think, um, as well as her discussion with, with, with Dr. Malki. Um, I think it's really interesting to see how she sort of um, really kind of poignantly says that uh, these earlier or quote-unquote traditionalist understanding of marriage in Islamic theology or in Islamic orthodoxy and legal theory are based on a slavery model, right? So it's, it's based on this value exchange that you're, you know, um, buying, you know, like a, technically it's a man buying a woman for, you know, sexual pleasure for for reproduction, for etc., etc., and this is what it is based on, as, as as her 
analysis and critique kind of formally shows. But I think we need to put it to push it a little step further and say, what what does it mean to actually reform family laws with something that is entangled with slavery? So how how can we actually make a distinction between you know not fighting for anti-blackness and for slavery in the Muslim and Arab world, and also fighting for Islamic justice within this family um, um, unit? So these are two things that are enmeshed with each other, and we cannot operate on one without the other and the other without one so it's kind of goes with the cliche like an oppression of a certain group is an oppression of all groups so we need to 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 ground it in more an intersectional understanding of of, of, of position so to only fight for certain issues collectively um might not be really um, um uh, might not really be the the best strategy especially here when we see like a huge entanglement with slavery and entanglement um in in the region um, so I think that's something that I was thinking maybe it could have been kind of, you know, uh, um, mentioned or pushed. We could push forward um, a little bit, um, 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 a little bit more. And I don't know what other people um, maybe think about this. Uh, when they speak also about the reforms of the personal status law and all these processes, <coughs> I was also thinking that it's calling on the state to help this woman, but we know that the state is not neutral. We know that. Uh, the state is machist, is, uh, I mean, it's classed, and so I don't really know if it's the, <laughs> the best solution to kind of better the situation of the woman. And as we were talking about, there is, I think, a lack of research on the woman underground also to know how they resist uh, these structures and use this, uh, uses it, it for their own benefits. And at the end, it could be also counterproductive to, to enhance these legal changes. Yeah, I agree. Um, Hatim's example reminded me of uh, a community in Pakistan where families actually seek out uh, marriages for their daughters with men who are willing to pay large sum of money and then they decide the contract. And it might seem like even to me in the beginning I thought, oh my god, this is horrible. But then the more that I learned about it from a person up close, I realized that they're actually using this to their benefit because their community was so underdeveloped and they decided to use this marriage to kind of make the lives of their daughters better and to make their own lives better. So they use the money for the benefit of the remaining daughters and then the daughter who gets married, she has so many clauses in the in the law and they have contacts with lawyers and everything and they have set it up in a way where she has to come home after a certain amount of months and she has to be paid a certain uh, pocket money and she has to have help and where she will live and all of this like which is something that um, is like usually non-existent in marriages where we would think that oh well you know this is like an arranged marriage or this is like something that you are uh, marrying like intentionally and this marriage might have been looked at as like she's being sold but this woman is definitely like you know maneuvering through the system trying to make something happen because of her status because of where she comes from because of her background again yes context matters especially in these matters and as Hatem says it's a way to navigate what you're currently working through you cannot rely on the state because sometimes for example in the case of Lebanon the state instead of being in charge of providing protection, safety for these women, ends up exploiting them, oppressing them even more, even though they are supposedly in charge of their safety. So for example, we still have a lot of laws in the region that we're still working towards um, removing, canceling out, such as you know the laws that exonerate rapists by marrying their victims. It's still an ongoing struggle in, uh, ongoing struggle in a lot of countries. Uh, in Lebanon, they removed the main one, 522, but there's still 
articles attached to it that still allow it to function as if removing it did nothing. So it's still a continuous struggle. And as you said, the state is not always the go-to. Why are we always relying on the state? I think what you said, Majdudin, is quite, quite really interesting for me as as a lot of kind of feminist conversations have been about what do we do when we when we don't seek the state or where, where do we, when do we seek the state and when we do not seek the state. But I think it's also, I, I love the conversation we're having and I think maybe we should also ground it, like we should, this is a critique that I'm really invested in, but I think we should also ground it within this idea that Musawah and the book are actually working to reform. So they're not really working to kind of overthrow this family structure or overthrow these kind of structures. So in a, the most possible way we can do this and mainstream it, quote unquote, is through reform. And I think that's a tactic and a strategy that we should honor um, and, and, and celebrate, to be honest. But I think it's 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 also limited, right? Like it, what we're working with is, is limited. We're not saying here, oh, like the, the family or this family formation is an, a violent, oppressive kind of configuration and let's sit together and imagine other ways of being in the world. But what we're trying to say is, you know, within the next couple of years, this is how it has been and what can we do to reconfigure it a little bit so it's better. Um, um, but I think what I'm trying to ask us is it's better for who and it's better for what purposes. And I think this is when kind of we grounded in these experiences of class, race, etc, etc. Uh, but it, I think that the point is we're still working within this larger configuration of the state and the family because that's that's what we have for now, at least with, with this. And I think it's important, as you said, to reiterate that no one is free until everyone is free. Um, it's very important to be always intersectional in our approaches. Um, the levels and accesses of oppression, they all matter. And circling back to the concept of hierarchy, especially given the situation of Muslim marriage and what it's portrayed or seen as this hierarchy, right? And one of the chapters, as we guys, as we've touched upon, was how Prophet Muhammad and Khadija radiallahu anha, um, their marriage was the example we're trying to seek, right? To amplify, to foster in our own Muslim marriages and how they touch upon a very important concept, especially nowadays, this masculinist analysis they employ and how we're supposed to seek out this feminist definition of what masculinity means and what it should um, seek towards and I think that's super important because we see a lot of times these days this sort of toxic masculinity um, what gets emphasized and what does not what is seen as quote-unquote weak and what is seen as strong and powerful what did you guys think I can jump in. Um, uh, that was my favorite chapter um, of the book. Um, I, I really, really enjoyed it. And I enjoyed it because of many levels. Um, the first one is of the method that they're employing in that chapter. So um, they're employing this method called the history of the present by Foucault, which is trying to understand history, not as this, you know, these things that we write in books and these journeys and stuff like that. Right? It's, it's something that helps us read our present and helps us navigate our present. And they're bringing this example of um, the marriage between um, uh, Prophet Muhammad, uh, peace be upon him, and, and, and Khadija radiallahu anha, which is, we really think of as an ideal, as something we all cherish, but we really never dig into this example of what actually it tells us. And I think it's really smart the way that they're bringing that example and 
putting it in the nation-state context in Muslim-majority countries now. And we see how actually that marriage defies every single thing that it exists that claims to be a part of Sharia, right? So Khadija was, was, was older than, than, than the, the Prophet. She was more financially, um, 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 she was the employer of the Prophet. He was um, seeking her in multiple uh, ways. He was also showing vulnerability. So we see through these examples how in any like nation state you pick today in, in the Arab or Muslim world, this would not be possible. I mean, just the context of Morocco, this 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 would be like, oh my God, like no, like the the man needs to provide, and like no, there should be like a you know a class differentiation. There should be a hierarchy in that marriage. When this example tells us actually, like let's like let's hold on for a sec. It hasn't been all the time this way. Let's see this example as a pedagogical way to understand what is wrong with the systems today and what is wrong with our struggle today. And I think that was really eye-opening because the figure of the Prophet Muhammad وسلم, as someone who embodies actually an anti-hegemonic masculinity that we think of right now, right? Showing vulnerability, showing emotions, relying on, 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 on a female partner. All of these things, now it's like, oh my God, no, you cannot do this. This is not what a real man should be, right? So I think we, we have an example of healthy masculinity that we never actually invoke because the interpretation of text has been masculinist in its way right and i think what's also interesting about this chapter is that they're also tracking how modernity as like a western project has impacted this understanding right it hasn't been that we also always understood men to be the provider and women to be at, at home this is a very bourgeois model that emerges from a certain western conception that has been impacted through colonialism through cultural imperialism that we have to really ground so i think Taking this example and seeing how powerful it is to show us the conditions of today, how they actually are not actually, uh, 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 mirroring the Islamic tradition or the Islamic way of thinking back then is, is actually really mind-blowing for me. I was really, really happy with that chapter. And it, 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 it was so grounded in that, that experience that I was like, oh, this is like something we, we should you know, rethink about, right? It's this figure that we have to think about in, in, in modern days. And I think that's the power of, of, of that chapter, at least for me, I mean. Um, I agree. I, I, I really enjoyed that example. I, like, I liked how, and I think even in their podcast, they were talking about it, um, about like how they humanized the prophet, like how they showed him as somebody who was vulnerable, who could make mistakes. And um, again, like the dynamic of their relationship, how when you receive their relation and the Khadija was the one who was the smarter person at that time, in that moment like who was trying to guide him through it and he's supposed to be the prophet but he wouldn't have been able to like how to discuss how he wouldn't have been able to accept all of that if it wasn't for her helping her out I definitely loved that example it was making me think of other um, marriages of the prophet as well there's other marriages that I've read about and I found those interesting as well there was one in particular where Umm Salama uh, was proposed to by the prophet because he promised her ex-husband who had passed away that he would take care of her and she refused to marry him so she kind of rejected him and he had to pursue her until she said yes but I never heard about it until when I was researching myself and I think this example was also telling us a lot about um, narratives and uh, knowledge production and how certain facts are uh, kind of erased or at least there is a volunteer to erase them and just to keep some parts to uh, to reinforce the power of those who already have power, basically, and to reinforce the status quo. And as Hatim was saying, these masculinist interpretations um, of the text and the facts. So I found it very interesting to see this yeah, marginalization of all which doesn't uh, support the Germanic narrative. Like you're saying, Mikhail, I think one of the points, the major points, unfortunately, but it's true, that the book is 
pushing for and showcasing is that indeed women are not to be seen as these inferior subjects. They are equal to men. They are equal subjects to be discussed, to be taken their advice, like Prophet Muhammad did. They're active agents. And I loved seeing that in the book, that these women are active agents in the process of knowledge production and dissemination. And they're taking what's rightfully theirs, their seat at the quote unquote table that should already be theirs. I, I really, I, I like what you're, you're saying, Majelina. I think it's the foundations of the book. I think if you read the first, uh, the first chapter particularly, it's this idea that ontologically women and men are the same, right? Like there, there's some sort of equality within the, the interpretation of Islam that it has been skewed. Um, and I can really see this from, I went through, uh, through like a traditional, if you want to call it quote unquote traditional um, public education in Morocco, right? And there's when you take public education in Morocco, there's a section called Tarbiya Islamiya or Islamic education. And it's so interesting for me to see how this book is actually altering all of these narratives that I have, that I have seen in my curriculum, right? Um, in, in, in Moroccan national schools. Even this idea of, you know, how the Prophet, uh, peace be upon him, was, was acting and what that means and what are certain erasures that I would call selective erasures. Like what you want to take out, you take out what you want to put in, you put in. The, this way of constructing history and constructing narrative really tells us a lot about actually how this inequality is also based in the way that we have been taught and the, way that we, the ways that we have been socialized. And if we take this book seriously, then it asks us as an invitation to revisit these concepts to question these concepts and to see what actually um, 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 can be kind of altered in our perception in order to achieve that egalitarian or um, view or what I think they called in the chapter something like at least for men as like feminist masculinity. I think that's that's the word they kind of they kind of used for it. So I think it's it's really important as a revisionist kind of aspect as a point of reflection um, on these issues um, um, of equality and, and, and egalitarian ethics. I just wanted to say that um, I believe it's the chapter by Dr. Nevin Rada, uh, where she talks about spirituality. The thing that I loved about that chapter was, as we're talking about egalitarianism and like equality, I felt like how she takes the concept of spirituality um, and talks about marriage in that sense. For me, it really shows the the basis of like equality in the marriage, how both of them help each other in their spirituality to reach a higher self or to have a better connection with God and for them to be on equal plane to have equal influence over each other like that chapter for me sets up like this idea very well i think it's very important to actually see discussions of spirituality because we talk about religion right the importance of religion in our lives but it's always seen as like these sets of um, practices rituals that you do and it sort of takes away that spirituality, you know, that mysticism attached to religion and your connection to God and what that means to you and to your partner and how, you know, a marriage is ultimately what we hope for is this partnership where you're actually growing together, you're getting closer to God, as you said, Sundos. It's something very special and, you know, spiritual. Yes, Ms. Julian, I completely agree. I particularly see this in the way that I think in one of the parts of the podcast, I believe, um, episode five, uh, when they talk about the, the, the movement of Musawa as a movement not necessarily of what they call Islamic feminism, but rather Muslim feminism. And I think this comes from this distinction between, you know, religion and spirituality. It's because they're saying that within the movement of, of Musawa, there are actually Muslim feminists who are secular, who don't see that the, the religion should intersect with the state. There are Muslim feminists who are Islamic and in, in, in the Islamist, you know, political kind of um, um, ideology. And there are just variety of people who see you know, the way that Islam should be lived differently, right? But what unites them is this kind of 
theological or ontological kind of um, commitment to equality within the spirit and spirituality, right? It's not necessarily that they see, it's not necessarily that they see, you know, this uh, spirituality being kind of officialized by the state. It's not like the state creates a mosque and the state creates this. And then, you know, we agree on these kind of rituals and practices and what should be in the law as that's the religion, but rather the way we connect with the divine within the commitment that there is equality. If you believe that, you know, the state and the, the and, and religion should be separate, or if you believe that the state and the, and, and the religion should be meshed together, doesn't really matter. What matters is do you believe in these ethics and this ontology of like equality between men and women? And that's what unites this Musawa project. And I think that's what's powerful. It's bringing together these people that usually don't talk together, but through this kind of project, as you know, a solidarity kind of or 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 or, um, or like an, a larger kind of commitment. After touching on this point, what do you think needs to be done to mainstream these teachings of these books and these lessons to be able to actually enact tangible change? Whether we say in the societal, the cultural, the legal realm especially with the new generation, the youth that we are. I think, for example, the podcast is definitely one way to do it. Um, and I really enjoyed, as you guys said, that Musawa really put in that work of like the reading guides, breaking it down, making it accessible. I think accessibility is very important. I think this is, uh, it's, I, I, as I said, like my, my fascination was the infrastructure that was built around this, this book project. And I think that's really powerful. Um, and I think we can do a couple of things to reach out to people, including, you know, TikTok, things like that can make you know, small um, information digestible to people. But I, what I want to really kind of also hone on is that this idea that, you know, knowledge and education alone will kind of like initiate straight change. And maybe this is, I'm more critical and, and skeptical with this perspective, but I think it's not enough to only know that, okay, we have changed, you know, our interpretation of the text. And now this is how we know it. It's, it's actually understanding how these interpretations or, or social life in, in Muslim communities and Muslim marriages are embedded within, you know, capitalist, racial, um, class, gender, sexualized kind of um, 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 forms that actually allow this to, to, to advance. If just we all know, but then we don't have the power to make change through, I don't know, capital, through, you know, political power, political will, then we won't actually advance a certain tangible material change and it will remain at the ideational level. So we need to do work more to bridge the ideational and the material to make sure that there is actually material change by looking at actually what what hinders this idea from becoming a reality. And it could be class, it could be race, it could be a combination of both, it can be gender, etc. So we have to really be attuned to these more structures that have more power. It's not just by taking away this hierarchical understanding ideologically, oh, now I understand the text with less hierarchy, however, that might be understood. It's actually what the hierarchy is in real world, right? It's not that someone is empowered to do something, but they don't have the power to do it because they have someone who's who's in a higher class who is, you know, employing them. If they say something, you know, they will have to um, lose their jobs and their material conditions will change. So we have to really, really ground our analysis within material stuff. Uh, not That not being said that education is not important, I just said that it should come with some form of, you know, material change. No, I completely agree. I think that's definitely one of the foundations if we want to truly enact change, for sure. I agree with Hatim. I was thinking the same thing when I was reading the book. Like, from, as we said about talked about accessibility, like who is it accessible to? So first, we have to think of the language of the book and where is it available and like how people can access it. Then after that, the podcast definitely it's like a very good idea. The guides are a good idea, and we can also like start to like try to do a campaign online which can also be useful to reach uh, people of different age groups but again this comes to class who has access to this right so then as Hatim said it has to go back to also the material change and not just change in this level 
Um, other than that, um, for me, like, I like to think about education, like, from the bottom. So I think, like, if slowly, slowly this can permeate into, like, storybooks of kids, like, it has to flow into these things where it's normal for you to read about about women, women in Islam, about perspectives by women and not just, like, um, things written by men and things written by men scholars. So for me, like, these things are also very important because uh, from a young age you set up certain schemas and that follow through with you in your life. It's a change in the, the material conditions and the materiality and how, I mean, if the law is changed but the judge is still a machist guy, <laughs> Uh, I don't think it, it will change anything for this woman and also to have an understanding of, about how this woman live the reality because like doing like the change can be counterproductive to also understand how they live with that and how they navigate how it's a strength but a weakness also and so I think it's also the, the danger to come uh, as a scholar or I don't know <laughs> and to impose or to, to suggest some change uh, while, I mean, on the ground s things are happening, so also how do we know what is happening, how these women navigate, and uh, all the diversity uh, among Muslim women, if we call them Muslim women. So I think it's also important. I think Sundus touched upon a very important point, which is cultural production, right? The things that we're consuming on a daily basis, ever since growing up, what continues to be, like Hatem said, in schools, the curriculums, um, the storybooks, the media we're consuming on a daily basis and also I guess very importantly this continuous conversation we're having regarding how we can tie scholarship and activism right how we can take theory into practice because that's something we're constantly striving for especially in our classes for example I remember always asking our professors okay this is great in theory now tell me what can we do to actually imply this or employ this in practice? It's a continuous struggle, this, this translation of scholarship from activism, because you don't want to be, as Hatem said, you know, you have this knowledge, you're in these high towers, and then, okay, what are you doing to sort of enact change? And I think we also have to be aware of this binary of like scholarship and activism as something that is actually very much based in the Western Academy. This is something like that how the, the West and these institutions have been kind of you know constructed that there is someone who is writing on a chair and then there's people who are struggling for, for, for labor rights. When actually I see this as more a little bit more muddy in the in at least in the context of Morocco. Like for example, um, anthropologists and sociologists in Moroccan public universities write like write like books for everyday consumption. They don't write like academic books with university presses, but rather they write books that people need to write. You know, you go to a library and you find a book that is, you know, for mass consumption, if you want to make that distinction. Whereas, for example, if you go to the US or you go to, you know, the European countries, you find like these more academic books. And then you find these people who are like, you know, for everyday consumption books. So I think we need to be very wary about this, you know, idea and also comes from this, you know, at least this idea that, you know, the scholar has, you know, money is paid by the university, they don't have contacts with people, which is really not the case, for example, in Moroccan universities, people are struggling, you know, in, in, in public universities to make ends meet and then they are actually a part of the labor unions, they are a part of like other, you know, struggles. So it's, it's inevitable that they're going to speak from inside the organizing and from inside the struggle, right? So I think we need to be more careful and I think this is something I appreciated actually about the book that there were people who were actually engaged in activism that were writing these chapters and I thought that was something, you know, to honestly cherish and, and to, to look forward to. I was just going to say that um, I've personally used some of Masava's reports whenever I couldn't find 
information. There was a chance Masava had a report and something, including like legal documents and texts that I couldn't find of my own country using the help of my lawyer friend and we couldn't find these documents and then Masawa had like a long report on it so definitely to make it more accessible it would be good Do you guys want to add anything? I would just like to say that I loved reading uh, so much coming from a woman um, I really enjoyed it I've personally dealt with like minor issues in life that have to do with like how do I deal with this religiously and there's just stuff written by men who don't actually know like what I'm going through, who will not experience what I'm going through. And they will write up like two to three lines and that's it, like you have to follow this end of story. And then there is no say on it from women. So something so small like affects my life and these are like larger issues. Um, so I personally really, really enjoyed reading from women, yeah. I think one like, last thing I would, I would want to say is um, I really kind of thank people who have contributed to this project uh, for having such a thing out in the world. I think it's really great and important um, um, for, for all of us to, to kind of um, contend with. But I want to also say that when we see and we take all of and soak in all of this information, we also need to understand the way that we're enmeshed in these systems, right? Like the way that you know, I come to this work and I understand myself as also a part of like these larger systems and how I can take away from, from, from this book's ways in, in which I can implement in my life. But also to not be afraid of change, you know? A lot of people still hold and hang on to these ideas, what, what the book called like traditional ideas of, 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 of Islamic family, because a lot of people are scared of, of uncertainty. You want like a figure to tell you exactly how it is going to be. And I think our generation at least is trying to embrace this idea of uncertainty in ways that I don't think we have seen um, um, before. And I hope that people take on this project and understand their own position and start to also question, you know, how capitalism, how racial structures, how racial capitalism actually also impact the ways that we live our lives and try to go beyond the deconstruction, you know, of like, oh, there's like a man and there is a woman, and there is this kind of rigid categories to try to understand and be more flexible and open um, 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 to a way that is like still values, you know, equality and equality and justice, whatever that looks for people on different sides of the spectrum. So I, I hope people take take it as a generative point, as a way to look forward, to think, to question, to, to, to navigate um, um, what they've been programmed. And one last example I will say is one, one of my friends always tells me is that we're like, if you think about us, it's like in a capitalist way, it's like we're all brands in the world is like this pre-made, pre-figured iPhone. When you know, when you buy like an iPhone, you have these apps that have been installed, you know, by the industry or like by like whatever the, the store that you, you, you come to. And after a certain years, you start saying, oh, this app is actually not useful for me. I'm going to delete it. Oh, this app is something I need to reconfigure. Oh, maybe I will change, you know, the theme of the, of, 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 the, of, of this. Maybe this is actually useless. So I think it's, it's in the questioning these assumptions that we've been kind of built into that we can actually see this as a generative point of work and, and hopefully have all better iPhones in the most capitalist way possible. <laughs> but, uh, but that's just my take on it. No, that's true because I feel like sometimes it's sort of seen as frowned upon to question. No, I want us to constantly question, not take things as they are. No, why is this as it is? What does this mean? How does this impact my life? Because as we all know, everything is political. Our lives are continuously political. You cannot disengage from that fact. The word feminist, for example, in itself, a lot of people tend to shy away. Like, yes, I believe in equal rights, but I'm not a feminist, you know? Don't lump me into that category. And as soon as you say that word, people, you know, they, they, they get this scare, like, no. 
and you're constantly having to prove like, oh no, being a feminist is a good thing, I promise, like, we all identify as feminists. You're totally right, um, Majdalene, and I think, I promise it's the last thing I'm gonna say. Certainly there's this uh, report that was put by um, Muslim jurists, so all of, most of them are men. Um, it's about, um, I think it's called something like navigating differences, clarifying sexual and gender ethics in Islam. And I really invite people, and this would be really harmful for gender and sexuality generally studies because it's a, still a very mainstream orthodox interpretation of Islam. And I hope this book gives us the tools and the methodological tools to read that and be critical of it. Because maybe we think, oh, this is just an ideology, this is a way of interpreting, but we cannot forget that this has real implications on people's lives. It has real implications of how people live their lives. And I hope that people take away not only questioning in the themes, but also the method as a method of inquiry. And this really speaks back to what you said. It's about always questioning what is given to us and what is said to us and engaging in this kind of critical um, mode of, of thinking, which is, you know, can be very frustrating. Sometimes you just want to, you know, have an ice cream and chill and be like, the world will be better. But sometimes it's it's useful to, to have these um, um, to have these kind of tools. And sometimes, you know, it's, it's time to chill and relax. But 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 you have to, you know, deal and grapple with these things because power is in constant work and we have to always fight. I want to thank you guys for today's discussion. It was lovely and very enriching. This is Women of the Middle East podcast.